This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state legislature could be on the brink of a breakthrough in a battle that has raged for a long time. Legislators are considering two mammoth proposals. Simply put, one would raise the statewide sales tax to pay for transportation. The other would make an important accounting change in the state budget and thus free up hundreds of millions of dollars. Republicans and Democrats have fought over similar proposals for years. This time, though, both bills have key bipartisan support in both chambers. An agreement could transform transportation, education, medical care. Senator Jerry Sonnenberg of Sterling is the second-ranking Republican in the state Senate, and he's the sponsor of one of these proposals, the accounting change I mentioned. Senator, thank you for being with us from the Capitol. It's my pleasure to join you, Ryan. A fundamental question to start. Why are we seeing such big proposals from both sides of the aisle aimed right at the heart of the state's finances now? There are huge issues that we have to face in Colorado. And uh, from my perspective, even tougher issues in rural Colorado. So uh, I think with the new administration in Washington, D.C., the aspects of what we may see down the road, we need to deal with those issues now. What do you mean when you say those issues, and uh, specifically for rural Colorado, which you represent? There's a number of issues, but there's three major ones that my bill deals with. It deals with education funding, it deals with highway funding, and it deals with health care. Education, there is an aspect in the bill that uh, directs money to rural and small rural schools. And many of your listeners will ask, well, Why would we just do it to those schools? I can tell you it's tougher for those small rural schools to adapt to changes or cuts in education financing. You can take a large uh, school district like Jeffco or Cherry Creek, and uh, uh, when you make changes, you make changes in millions of dollars. And yes, you figure out ways to work through that. You make changes in small rural schools that may be $50,000, $60,000 is all, And that's one teacher. But that one teacher taught two grades. Well, as all things in Colorado eventually do, uh, this proposal gets us to the constitutional amendment called the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which limits growth in government each year to the combination of population growth plus inflation. And then any amount over that is refunded to taxpayers. That said, I want to look at this accounting change at the heart of your bill. It moves the hospital provider fee, which hospitals pay to help fund medical care for poor people. The money collected from that fee is currently counted toward a cap in Tabor. And it means that as fee collections have grown, the state has to start refunding a part of its discretionary budget back to taxpayers instead of spending it on schools or other things. Uh, What does your bill do to this often talked about and uh, somewhat mysterious hospital provider fee? Essentially what it does is it creates the hospital provider fee into a new enterprise outside of the state budget. And then in order to follow the Constitution, what makes this different than previous uh, attempts, why Republicans have been opposed in the past, is we lower the Tabor cap to adjust for what we have taken out and put in the enterprise. It sounds like they're a trade-off. In other words, you will agree to do what Democrats have sought to do for a long time, which is reclassify this fee, but only if there's this kind of reset. Am I right about that? 
Yeah, only if we follow our Constitution, which there's a spot in Tabor that says that if you create an enterprise, and we have used it before with Parks and Wildlife, and decrease that cap to meet that uh, constitutional requirement. And we're doing the same thing here. The challenge is going to be the numbers to pass the bill. The House sponsor of your bill is that chamber's second-ranking Democrat. It's House Majority Leader Casey Becker of Boulder. She told us she generally favors this, the accounting change, but doesn't much like lowering the Tabor cap. She thinks once the bill gets into the process, that part can be negotiated. I don't want to see the Tabor cap decreased. I don't think that's the right move for Colorado. I think we can find something that both sides of the aisle, both the House and the Senate can support. Uh, Senator, is that open for negotiation or is it in your mind just a question of how much the cap is lowered. Yes, there's going to have to be negotiations. Now, we have to figure out what that fine line is. If Representative Becker in the House moves that limit too much, I lose the support I have in the Senate. So we're going to have to figure out what that compromise is. Uh, Obviously, it would be a much different compromise if both chambers were controlled by one party or the other. Mm. Uh, But with the split chambers, we are going to have to figure out what that compromise looks like to benefit rural Colorado. And quite frankly, all of Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And the president pro tem of the state Senate, Jerry Sonnenberg of Sterling, is with me. We're talking about his proposal that would add dollars in the budget for transportation, education, and potentially health care as well. We can't uh, talk about this without mentioning the other big legislative proposal this year, an increase in the statewide sales tax from 2.9% to 3.52% to pay for roads and other forms of transportation. It is sponsored by Democratic House Speaker Chrysanta Duran and your boss, Republican Senate President Kevin Grantham. Let me say that the legislature can't raise this tax itself. Voters have to approve that. So they're essentially sponsoring a bill to ask that question of Coloradans. Would you raise the statewide sales tax to pay for transportation? Where do you stand on that proposal? Well, it's a long ways. Actually, it just got sent to the Senate past the House. Uh, I won't have an opportunity to look at that bill until it's gone through committee and they have made changes to it. Uh, I understand there will be changes. So I'm not going to commit uh, one way or another. Uh, I can tell you in my bill, I also have a transportation uh, aspect of that as well, Right. where we take $100 million and we bond for one point three five billion dollars for transportation. It's not as much as the sales tax is putting forward, but if my bill passes, then maybe his, uh, the Mr. President's uh, bill doesn't need to have such a, uh, an increase on uh, sales tax. Hmm. Mine does it within the existing structure by bonding. So you are absolutely thinking of this in an, in an ecosystem that is your bill related to the hospital provider fee could work in concert with this proposed sales tax increase. As you say, your bill raises about $1.35 billion for bonding. Uh, the Colorado Department of Transportation has $9 billion on its list of road projects, just for some scale there. Because Majority Leader Becker said all of this was open for negotiation, we asked whether if Republicans were willing to negotiate on the accounting change for the hospital provider fee, Democrats might consider indeed, as you say, reducing the size of their proposed tax increase. Here's what she said about that. 
I believe that's something the speaker and the Senate president are absolutely willing to look at, that if this bill passes with significant transportation funding in it, they might consider lowering the proposed tax that would go to voters in November. So right now, that proposed tax is 0.62. It could be something less. I want to say that your bill, Senator, also asks that state departments propose 2% cuts to each of their budgets. Is that counterproductive, um, given this, this position the state's in? I would say not, absolutely not. Uh, the truth is uh, we have continued to see bloated budgets through audits. I don't see any reason whatsoever that we can't reduce the size of government by 2% and become more efficient. I mean, that's the whole idea of my bill as well, is try to be more efficient. Matter of fact, I have entitlement reform, Medicaid reform uh, within that bill as well. If we're going to do the hospital provider fee, let's find more efficient ways to deliver that health care. That's all part of the entire efficiency of government that I think is important. And uh, I don't think there's any question that government agencies can cut 2% from their budget and find a little bit of fat. When you talk about Medicaid, would this potentially reduce the size of the Medicaid rolls? Are there people on Medicaid you'd like not to be on the program? There is that issue with regard to how we have expanded um, Medicaid, but uh, the truth is that's driven by the federal government, uh, and and we don't have much control over that. If they make changes, uh, I look forward to working with the state then to figure out how those changes are implemented in Colorado. But when it comes right down to it, we have to find ways to provide health care to those most needy that actually need it, and that's what I'm after. You have a former business owner as governor. Don't you think if there were 2% to cut from state departments, he would have found it? He's all about efficiency, isn't he? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, his agenda is probably a little bit different uh, than mine. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say what uh, the governor would prioritize over what I would prioritize, but I can tell you that I know of several places that I think I could make 2% cuts in certain agencies if I were governor. Name it here today for me. Quite frankly, I'd start uh, probably with the Department of Revenue. I'd uh, go next to uh, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and I would change the focus rather than governing with a hammer to try and be more business-friendly and being helpful They have too many people, I would argue, in the enforcement side of the agencies and not enough people in the public service side to help those people that actually have questions, that may be out of compliance, that may have uh, turned in a permit wrong. And instead of hammering them with a large fine and trying to drive them out of business, have people in place to help those customers that are trying to do business in Colorado. Finally, Senator Sonnenberg, uh, your bill also strongly favors rural areas in doling out money for transportation in particular. For instance, 25% of the funds for roads would go to counties with fewer than 50,000 people. Given that the population is highly concentrated in the metro area, is that fair? And and I'm not sure you can use population as the sole reason for uh, highway funding distribution. 
if you look at the number of lane miles, the actual miles of highway that we have throughout Colorado, I think you have to give some credence to that factor as well. Real Colorado hosts number one and number two industries in this state, and that's energy and agriculture. And if we can't get those products safely to our urban cousins, that benefits no one. Uh, of course, severance taxes from oil and gas pay in part for some of those roads, don't they? And, and the commensurate traffic with oil and gas? Some of those severance tax dollars, some of them actually go to the counties to be utilized for highways or for their county roads or those type of things. Uh, uh, Very little of that actually goes into state highways. Um, They're distributed to counties that are impacted by uh, oil and gas production or mineral extraction to help mitigate uh, the costs with an increase in population, uh, sometimes it's the schools, sometimes it's fire departments. Uh, that's typically how severance tax dollars are distributed regarding oil and gas. Senator, thank you for being with us. That's uh, always my pleasure, Ryan. State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg is from Sterling on Colorado's Northeastern Plains. He's the second ranking Republican in the state Senate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Lead is banned from paint and gasoline for health reasons, but most ammunition is still made from the stuff. Studies show it can end up in meat if game is shot with lead bullets, and the gut piles hunters leave behind in the wild can also contain lead fragments. Birds and other wildlife scavenge off what's there and risk being poisoned. Back in 2014, Colorado's Fish and Wildlife Commission dropped a citizen proposal to outlaw lead bullets in big game hunting. More recently, the new Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, reversed a last-minute Obama-era order which banned lead bullets in hunting on federal lands. We're going to get some perspective from Lynn Peoples, who wrote about this for Undark. That's an editorially independent magazine based at MIT. And Lynn, welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You start your article with a visit to a shooting range for a demonstration. Two different bullets were shot, one made of copper, the other lead. What was this all about? Right. So I drove to this tiny town in eastern Oregon to see firsthand what you described, this concern surrounding the ongoing use of lead ammunition and what the alternatives look like. A biologist from the Oregon Zoo had come to town from Portland to give this demonstration to local hunters and other recreational shooters in the area. And he was demonstrating the difference between lead and copper bullets, how the two bullets shoot, how well they might penetrate a game animal, and how they might fragment within that animal. So we all, we all watched as a lead bullet and then a copper bullet were shot into side-by-side horizontal rain barrels. And inside each barrel, they had set up a lineup of five one-gallon jugs filled with water. Um, members of the gun club were pretty surprised at the difference in performance that the two bullets showed. So we, we saw that the copper bullet penetrated all five jugs, whereas the lead bullet cut through just two of those jugs. What's more, the copper bullet remained pretty much fully intact, 99% of its weight after penetrating those jugs, 
while the lead bullet left a quarter of itself as little tiny lead fragments inside the barrel. So this was supposed to kind of show, mimic what might happen inside a game animal should a hunter choose a lead versus a, a copper bullet. And why was this and demonstration led, yeah. necessary? Um, you say the, the audience uh, was hunters. Hunters and, yeah, recreational shooters. So as you hinted at earlier, the uh, lead ammunition still is about roughly 90% of the 10 billion rounds purchased every year in the U.S. So it's it continues to dominate the market. And the hunters that I met at the demonstration, none of them had actually used copper bullets before. A few had seen them. You know, many had heard about them, but it was often the context of materials produced by the National Rifle Association. And they've been known to persistently lobby against this transition to copper ammunition that advocates, environmental and public health experts are urging based on those concerns you mentioned, concerns for raptors who might be eating gut piles that contain some of these lead fragments, as well as the hunters and their families who consume the game meat brought home after a hunt. And so in short, uh, to wrap up that demonstration, the copper bullet performed fairly well, it sounds like, in comparison. And the big difference were all of those fragments that the lead bullet left behind. Is is that the fundamental difference? Absolutely. And so lead is characteristically soft, which um, is, is generally a good thing when you're talking about hunting. It means on impact that it expands and widens, causing more damage to the animal huh. as it goes through. And you want you want a bullet to be lethal. You want to down an animal. No hunter wants to leave an animal suffering or have to chase it down through the forest and, and shoot another bullet into it. So that's a good thing. But that same softness is the same reason that it also tends to uh, break down upon impact and release those fragments. So the demonstration showed just how that happens. Uh, the copper material is harder, and so it's not going to lose as much of its of itself as it as it goes into an animal. But is it going to kill the animal as well? I imagine that that is a question that the hunters and sport shooters gathered had. Absolutely, and that's exactly what um, one of the the big points of this demonstration. Uh, over the last several years, engineers have done a pretty good job of mimicking the lead's ability to what they call mushroom as it goes into the animal. Copper bullets are now engineered to splay out almost like flower petals, these sharp flower petals as it impacts. And that creates that same width and um, ability to, to cause damage to the animal. So as we mentioned, uh, former President Obama on his uh, last day in office ordered a ban on the use of lead ammunition on federal lands. Then the new Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, on his first day in office reversed that order. What were some of his reasons, um, given what we know about lead and, and people and animal health? Right. Yeah, the move was not a surprise to most experts I spoke with. So Zinke suggested his move will allow people outside of, quote, the land-owning elite to participate in outdoor recreation. So he hearkened back to a lot of the arguments that I heard from gun rights groups in reporting this piece that due to copper's higher price tag, that it's eliminating 
um, perhaps some folks who might not afford to hunt or shoot from participating in the sport. And that's another key point is that the gap between the price tag on the lead and copper bullets is shrinking. I mean, it's copper bullets on average still do cost more than lead, but that gap is is shrinking. And and when you look at the overall price for hunting, um, especially for big game hunting, advocates will point out that it's really a small fraction of that overall cost. When you consider the transportation, the food, the lodging for a hunter that goes out on a hunt, and especially if they're looking to take their one or two elk a season to bring home to feed their family, that's only a few bullets. And a box of bullets could then last them a few years. And part of this argument that it might make hunting more expensive uh, then circles around to a wildlife protection argument because it is often hunting licenses that pay for state wildlife divisions. Uh, And so the, the argument goes, if fewer people are hunting, then wildlife may suffer in different ways. Um, then they might benefit if lead were banned. Uh, I also think uh, the new Interior Secretary had some issues with, with how this was done, that there wasn't enough public in- input. Right. He did make that claim. And, yeah. and just like you said, right, the gun industry does suggest that banning lead ammo if it does dissuade people from hunting, as you say, um, those licenses and tag fees uh, do are do provide a significant funding source for conservation. So there is that worry from that side that that is going to come back and kind of bite <laughs> the advocates who are urging for this move for the purpose of conservation. So is so part of this the, a slippery slope argument as well from gun rights activists that if you ban a certain kind of ammunition, you pave the way for more gun control. That's exactly what I heard over and over. They're warning gun owners that, yeah, passing such laws uh, could threaten the Second Second Amendment even. They, they suggest that their right to own a gun, their right to hunt might be threatened down the road. And they've lobbied against bans on lead bullets. In California, in fact, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, an arm of the NRA, increased their financial resources in the state sevenfold in 2013 when debate there over a state ban on lead ammo had heated up. And part of that argument was this slippery slope. They they continued to, 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 to share that warning with gun owners and hunters alike. So, um, Lynn, we reached out to Patrick Martinez. He's a former biologist for both the Colorado and National Wildlife Agencies. And um, he didn't return our calls, but he wrote an opinion piece for the Pueblo chieftain saying that he was disappointed in uh, former President Obama's ban on the use of lead ammunition on federal lands for its overreach and lack of public input. He says Obama's order, quote, cited the deceptive and unsubstantiated claim that there is an ongoing risk to birds which ingest spent shot that the science has failed to show this risk to scavenging birds is widespread. He went on, the banning of lead ammunition for hunting and eventually for recreational shooting will reduce participation in hunting and shooting sports. Um, But for your article, you spoke with Dr. Michael Kosnett, an environmental toxicologist at the University of Colorado. Uh, He co-authored a statement in 2013 about the health risks of lead-based ammunition, 
He said lead is a neurotoxin that can have lifelong impacts on children into adulthood. And he thinks the reversal of Obama's order by Secretary Zinke is too focused on the dollars and cents difference, the cost that is between copper ammunition and lead. I think a cost that he ignored was the cost to the resources, the ecological resources, and the potential cost to health in people who are unfortunate enough to consume lead-contaminated meat. And that's a cost that I don't believe he took into consideration. And yet, in 2014, Colorado Parks and Wildlife voted to drop a citizen-raised proposal that would have banned lead bullets for big game hunting in the state. Uh, They made that decision in part because they thought there was a lack of credible scientific evidence on the long-term effects of lead ammunition on wildlife. What does the science say? I mean, we know lead is bad in paint. It's bad in gasoline. Why wouldn't it be bad in bullets? Help us understand what we know and what we don't. Right. It's true. As the years go on, it seems like we keep finding that, you know, that well, there really is no safe limit to the amount of lead we consume. And that's especially true for children. The CDC has stated that there is no safe level of lead in for, for children. And that's the big concern, even if it is the tiniest little fragments. Um, and these fragments are often uh, undetectable by the human eye. If a child intakes that, we don't know what might potentially happen. Maybe there won't be an impact, but... If there is an impact, it's likely it may not be directly noticed. It's not likely to make them acutely ill. Just like with a bird, I spoke with wildlife rehabilitators that described lead poison birds coming in, and there's some pretty obvious symptoms. You might see a weak bird um, with a drooping head, tattered wings, you know, really acutely sick. But you might also see, or you may not see, um, more importantly, how a bird could be affected by lead just by becoming a little slower physically and mentally. Perhaps they're going to be unable to hunt for food or a lead-induced lack of coordination makes them more likely to run into a wind turbine or a power line. So their death may never be counted as connected to lead exposure. And for a child, that might correlate to a couple points lower IQ, or perhaps they're going to have more behavioral problems down the road. And a parent may never make that connection that the lead had anything to do with that. And that's kind of this broader concern with lead poisoning among public health advocates is that it's kind of this hidden epidemic beyond those acute cases that we might know immediately are connected with lead poisoning, whether from paint or gasoline or lead bullets, but this more subtle effect that can affect a lot of folks and a lot of wildlife in this case as well. You talked about the effect potentially on birds, especially birds of prey. We reached out to Michael Tinker at the Rocky Mountain Raptor Program in Fort Collins, and he says they do indeed see birds poisoned by lead. Uh, And again, this is a function of having those lead bits scatter throughout gut piles that are left by hunters, uh, usually during the, the fall hunting season. We'll get a a case in, you know, bird that was hit by car, and we'll draw its blood, test it, see it had a higher uh, level of lead in its blood. What came first? Was it just being hit by a car, or was it weakened because of the lead that it was hit by a car? Then there's the walk-off factor. They become uh, incapacitated or diminished by lead. 
and they just disappear and die. So it is very, very difficult to quantify it, to what extent lead is impacting uh, raptor species out there. Speaking more to the mystery, I think, that you were talking about, I'll say that California has banned the use of lead bullets in hunting, phasing that in by 2019, partly because lead from ammunition has been found to be the leading cause of death for the endangered California condor. Arizona has enacted a voluntary ban, which is a more or less encouragement to use copper bullets. I will say that there is some federal regulation on this, isn't there? Um, I think there are certain critters you can't hunt with lead bullets under federal law? Right. Well, the only current federal regulation, now that Zinke has overturned the Obama administration's attempt, is regarding lead ammunition. Um, And it's from 1991 requiring lead-free shotgun pellets for the hunting of waterfowl. So the the U.S. government phased that in starting in the mid-1980s. Um, allowing time for manufacturers, retailers, and hunters to make that conversion. And back then, there were obviously some, so you might expect some pushback on that law and worries about how that might affect hunters' availability of ammunition. But as advocates told me, the you know people respond to regulation and manufacturers started producing these lead-free, this lead-free shot and Hunters are still shooting waterfowl, so it hasn't killed that sport. I guess I want to wrap up um, with the scene that we described at the beginning, this this demonstration for hunters. Was anyone convinced by what they saw? There, I definitely saw some attitude changes. There was one, uh, one guy there in particular who... He was very open and honest with me. At the end of the demonstration, I was speaking with him, and he he said that he was convinced to buy a box of copper bullets, but he was not convinced because of any of the environmental or health potential risks that were discussed during the day. Rather, for him, it was the performance of the bullet. He was able to test out a few different types of copper bullets and found one that worked well in his rifle. He was happy with its accuracy. He was happy with its penetration and he felt confident taking that that bullet into the field with him. Uh, the another another guy at the range was was uh, more convinced by the environmental health risks that he did see, and he's he's taking that information and passing it along to other members of the range. So I did see, yeah, definitely some impact from the demonstration. Are you left with any questions after this reporting? Ah. Uh, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing I was left with is just how how much education seems to, to kind of be the next step here. There seemed to be a lot of unawareness, uh, people that because of copper bullets, lack of penetration into the market at this point, people aren't even aware of the alternative, just how effective it could be, um, perhaps more affordable as the years go on. And that's what the, the guy from the Portland from Portland, from the Oregon Zoo, came that went that came to the range. His goal right now is to start spreading the word further, and he's hoping to get to more gun ranges and and share this demonstration with more more folks that might not otherwise have exposure to this kind of an opportunity to test out the alternatives and and perhaps make that choice to to make that switch themselves.
And I suppose the question going forward is whether the market determines the future of ammunition or government. Lynn Peoples, a freelance reporter based in Seattle, and she wrote about lead-based ammunition. Her article also touches on the military and law enforcement aspects of this. So you can read the article in full at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. Child marriage in the United States isn't just a thing of the past. A Colorado historian was surprised to find that even today, it's not that unusual. Nick Surrett's new book is called American Child Bride. It traces the history of young marriage from colonial times to the present. Surrett is an associate professor of American history at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, and he sits down with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have a bunch of anecdotes from the past about young girls marrying older men. But first, let's get a sense of what young marriage looks like now. How common is it for Colorado minors, those under 18, to be married? It's not remarkably common. It's certainly not the norm. Um, But the uh, Department of Public Health and the Environment reports that about 5,050 young people have married between uh, since the uh, the year 2000. Okay. And and what are the numbers nationally? The best estimates that we have, and they are to a degree estimates because some states don't collect and report these statistics, but the best estimates are just under 250,000 children uh, between 2000 and 2010 have been married as minors. Okay, so it's not a huge amount, but but there are many folks that are getting married early. Yeah, they're surprisingly, uh, the, the numbers are surprisingly high. It is by no means the norm or common, but f- most people think that this is something that is sort of long ago of the past, and that's that's not the case. And what are the laws around marriage in the United States now? How young can someone be married? One In a few states, you could marry as young as 12 um, if wow. you are a girl. So uh, the most states basically set 18 as the minimum and then have a variety of exceptions written into their laws. So if you have parental consent, judicial consent. So in Colorado, for instance, the law is 18. But uh, with parental consent, 16 and 17-year-olds can marry and below 16 with parental and judicial consent. And there is no absolute minimum in Colorado. So you meaning, could be 10 9. Well, generally... Uh, in those states that don't have absolute minimums, Colorado, Massachusetts is another, they rely on the English common law, which mm-hmm. we inherited from the colonial era. And that sets 12 for girls and 14 for boys as the minimums. Okay. Arranged marriages involving young girls are pretty common in developing countries. How does that compare to what's happening in the United States today? Generally speaking, we're not talking about arranged marriage here. Um, there were cases of arranged marriage, certainly in colonial America, where very young children were married, usually to each other, by parents who wanted to sort of solidify fortunes and continue uh, sort of uh, dynastic sort of uh, uh, relationships between families. But that's mostly not what's happening here. There are some exceptions. There are a number of activist groups uh, working today trying to ban uh, forced and arranged marriage, particularly among some immigrant groups where mm-hmm. uh, young immigrant girls are forced to marry men, or sometimes they take them back to home countries and have them married and then bring them back. But by and large, we're talking about teenagers choosing to marry each other, even if perhaps making ill-informed decisions in doing so. 
and yet the U.S. has joined other developed countries in criticizing child marriages elsewhere while the U.S. still has it here. That's right. So there's a good deal of criticism of child marriage um, from the United States, but the United States still refuses to sign on to a a number of major uh, United Nations conventions that would outlaw child marriage altogether, in part, some argue, because they don't want to be bound to sort of treaties with other nations. So I think many in the United States, uh, and particularly those who criticize child marriage, are used to thinking of it as very young children. So it's fine to criticize that, but we don't want to look too far inward to think about the 13, 14, 15-year-olds who are marrying here. Hmm. Well, let's look back at the advent of this country. How often were children married back then? Well, in the colonial era, it's very difficult to know because no one kept systematic marriage records. So we know that it happened, but we just don't know how frequently it happened. Um, The first moment that we have sort of systematic uh, records kept is really only in the middle of the 19th century. Um, And there we know that, you know, in some states between, you know, 15 and 20 percent of girls below age 20 or of, of marriages performed were for girls below age 20. In some southern and rural states, it was as high as 45, 46, 47 percent. But that's the first moment we know. Okay, and we'll talk about different regions of the country in a minute. But what was the motivation for those who were being married early on back then? There are a variety of motives. In some ways, I think it was almost the same motives as for other people getting married. That is, in a society that doesn't value age all that much, and for much of the 19th century, lots of people did not know their birthdays. They did not know how old they were. So the sort of pre-qualifications for marriage were acting like or seeming like an adult, um, having, uh, you know, reached puberty for girls and boys, and for a boy, you know, being able to support a wife. So many people got married not because they were young, but despite the fact or sort of regardless of the fact that they were young. That said, legally, there are some advantages to marriage that some people took advantage of. It is a way to escape your father's house if he is abusive. You gain access to your wages, those sorts of things. Marriage affects that legal uh, sort of transition. You're listening to CPR's Colorado Matters. We're speaking with Nick Sered about his new book, American Child Bride. Sered is a history professor at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. Did anything surprise you when you were researching this book? Two things. I think I, in approaching the book, I had thought that I would be writing largely a history of sort of child exploitation. And there is some of that in the book, to be sure. But I was surprised by the degree to which young people, especially teenagers, were cognizant of what they were getting into when they married and why they did it. So some of the stuff I mentioned before, escaping uh, parents' homes, um, many children clearly realized that marriage was a way to uh, have sex and not be uh, sort of... uh, Uh, liable for prosecution for statutory rape. Um, It was a way of keeping their wages, of gaining inheritances, of getting out of school. For many years, uh, lawmakers would excuse married teenagers from having to go to school. So there's lots of evidence in the court record suggesting that some teenagers knew what they were doing and went into this eyes wide open. I mean, we can still recognize it may not have been the best of decisions most of the time, but they knew the decision they were making. And that surprised me. And of of course, there were some cases of child exploitation as well. But some of the couples where the girl married very young became huge news sensations. What was the most intriguing to you? 
probably the most intriguing and the biggest, well, there are probably two that were the biggest news sensations, but one um, occurs in 1937, uh, in January of 1937, in the uh, hills of Tennessee, uh, just below the Virginia state line, where a nine-year-old girl named Eunice Winstead married a 22-year-old man named Charlie Johns. Um, and they did so without their parents' permission. They lied to get the marriage license, which was incredibly common until the middle of the 20th century. They got married and... Someone, even in an area where early marriage was quite common, found out about it. It made the news in nearby Knoxville, and then it made headlines around the world. Um, and it resulted in legal changes to the law in Tennessee and two other states and the District of Columbia, um, and sort of a nationwide conversation about what are our state's laws? How did this happen? How can we prevent it from happening? So this was outrage folks were feeling. Yes, absolute outrage. Um except in their own community where people thought it should not have happened, but no one moved to annul the marriage, um, in part because people married young there. And none of these people had sort of opportunities beyond Treadway, Tennessee, where they got married. Um, so everyone expected they probably would marry eventually. Um, her parents were adamant that they were not yet having sex, and she didn't have a first child until she was 15. And indeed, they remained married until he died in 1996. Hmm. There's one story you have about a young child bride from Italy who comes to New York in the late 1800s, I believe, and was forced to marry an older man. And there's this disturbing photo of the two where the 11-year-old girl is half the size of her husband, who's 27. We've posted it at our website, cprnews.org. Tell us about that case. Yeah, so that's uh, Francesca Carboni in 1891 was brought from Italy. And it's unclear whether she was kidnapped or her parents simply let her go or they sold her. Um, but so she was brought from Italy and she was married off to a 27-year-old man in Brooklyn. Um, and she was abused by him um, and she managed to escape and she was found by agents for the Brooklyn Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children uh, in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And the photo actually is not of her and her husband. It's of her with the agent from the BSPCC. But it is absolutely meant to sort of denote exactly the contrast that you mentioned. That is the, the difference in size. She is tiny and a fully adult man is is much larger. So than this guy was modeling. He for... yeah, he was standing there as sort of an agent to demonstrate just how small she was in comparison to, you know, okay. an, an adult man. These stories involve young girls marrying older men, but how typical was it for boys to be married? It was not nearly as common for boys to marry, but there are lots and lots and and we don't it's difficult to sort of get a sort of a, a nationwide survey of all of the numbers the whole time. But they pay, the numbers pale in comparison, a tiny minority compared to the number of girls. That said, it was not uncommon for two teenagers to get married to each other. Um, so the young, the boy-older woman combination almost never happened. But the, you know, teenage boy and girl together, that's been common um, and continues to be uh, certainly some of the circumstances that we see when people are getting married today. Views on young marriage began to change as society changed its perspective on childhood. When did that happen? Historians debate this a little bit, but it's a gradual process over the course of the 19th century. It arrives first for the middle class who come to sort of value children as uh, sort of unique individuals within the family who are not meant to be working, who should be going to school. 
middle-class families have fewer children, meaning that they lavish more sort of individual attention upon them. And by the end of the 19th century, progressive-era reformers start to pass a whole lot of laws to protect children. So juvenile justice, mandatory schooling, some municipal curfew laws, statutory rape laws, all of these legalize the distinction between children and adults and sort of in part create a legal category of adolescence as well. I thought it was interesting that as World War II was getting underway, the marriage age started declining. Explain why. Yeah, so a couple things are happening. One, there were lots of sort of uh, last-minute marriages as World War II began, in part because sweethearts were trying to solidify their bonds before men want, went off to fight. And also some women were interested in being recognized as legal spouses if their husbands should die at war. So marriage generally increased at World War II. And then immediately afterwards, the age of first marriage went down. This is the era of the baby boom. So there's a real emphasis on domesticity uh, across the United States. And so most people didn't get married as teenagers. But for one or two years, the average age of marriage was actually 18, meaning that large, large numbers were getting married below the age of 18. And part of this is also a reaction to changes in sexual mores. So more and more people are having sex um, in dating and courtship relationships. Um, but the solution to that when pregnancy sometimes occurs was a shotgun marriage. And that accounts for large numbers of the people who got married quite young in the 1940s and 50s. Hmm. And there have always been pockets of the country where young marriage is more common. Uh, the South, as you said, for example. What are some of the factors that lead folks to get married early in different regions? So by and large, the South is a great example, but rural America more generally, and the South just happens to be pretty rural, um, account for a majority of underage marriages and always have. In part, it's that in rural America, for most of our history, this is less so today, but um, age mattered a little bit less then. But also, people are more likely to be impoverished in some parts of rural America. So the opportunities um, for something other than marriage are diminished. Also bear in mind that in some parts of rural America, people are more conservative. There are more conservative outlooks towards sexuality. Um, marriage is seen as the solution to out-of-wedlock pregnancy. Um, uh, sex education may be less available. Abortion may be less available. All of these contribute to seeing marriage as the solution to sex. And how does marital success and happiness compare when couples marry young and when they marry older? Is there a difference? There is. Um, it's difficult to know about the happiness part of it, um, at least historically, because no one ever took surveys about that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of... Uh, marital sort of success in terms of divorce, all studies show that those who marry very young are much more likely to divorce than those who marry later in life. Nick, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Nick Surratt is Associate Professor of American History at the University of Northern Colorado. His new book is American Child Bride. He spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. That's our program for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. We're CPR News on Facebook. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Public Radio.